We're um, starting a series this morning that I'm calling The Church Defined. And what does it mean to be the church? Why do we do this? Why do we gather together on Sunday mornings? Some people would say it is that, that we do this is, is because we need to comfort ourselves, that this is a panacea to make us feel better in a broken world. Some people might say is, is that um, we do it because we're deluded. Some people might say is, is that um, we do it because we're just a part of kind of the other clubs that people are a part of. And so there's lots of reasons why people say we might do this, but why do we do this? Why do we gather together and, and really try to be the church, the body of Christ? It is a blessing. Yep. This is um, something that's important for us to think about. Chuck Colson, a number of years ago, he wrote a book called Being the Body. And he tells a story about the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. The architect of the Twin Towers was Minora Yumasaki. I hope I pronounced that right. And uh, his challenge was to design 12 million square feet of floor space. And given where the design was happening is, is it's not like you can spread out when you're that area. So the only way to design that much space is, is to go up. And so he designed these towers so that all of the weight would be sustained in the middle and the edges, which was new to architecture for that time. 60% of the weight of the towers would be sustained at the center and then, and then and the edges, the center and the edges with, with kind of that gap not having to sustain as much weight. So 60% of the weight was sustained at the center and the rest in the walls. And what this did is it allowed for 75% of the floor space to be used for occupancy. Now for this day, it was revolutionary. It was a huge improvement because the average usable floor space in towers during that time period was 50%. Can you imagine that? How much waste went into these skyscrapers? And so to have 75% of floor space was, was really unique and, and, and really a big improvement. And these would be the tallest buildings in the world for that day. Yamasaki famously said, world trade means peace. The World Trade Center was to be a representation of mankind's cooperation and interaction. 3,500 workers worked, it, worked to construct the World Trade Center towers. They poured 425,000 cubic yards of concrete. If you don't have an understanding of how much concrete that is, ask Yancey or Dave or Johnny. Okay, that's a lot of concrete. So a huge amount of concrete. And... They erected 200,000 tons of steel. They installed the world's largest air conditioning system in the world for that day. The North Tower soared 1,368 feet into the air, and then it was crowned with a 360-foot antenna. From the observation deck, you could see 45 miles in every direction. On any given day, 50,000 people passed through the doors using 103 elevators. Interesting, huh? These towers had been designed to sustain hurricanes, earthquakes, conventional explosives, and even a direct hit from a 124-ton Boeing 707. What they could not sustain was a Boeing 767 weighing 400,000 pounds, 
with 24,000 gallons of jet fuel flying at 500 miles an hour. When it hit the North Tower, seismometers 30 miles away were able to pick up the ground vibration in the same way they'd pick up an earthquake. 2,977 people died on September 11th. For some, it's just a memory. For those of us that can look back on that day, it's seared into our minds. 2,977 people between the towers and the Pentagon. 184 of those died at the Pentagon. 19 hijackers committed murder-suicide. 6,000 people were injured. There's lots of stories about how the body of Christ responded during that time period. One church in particular, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, gathered on the Sunday after with thousands of people attending. Timothy Keller, the pastor, I've heard him talk about this a number of times. He addressed the thousands of people gathered who gathered with wadded tissue paper, lots of tears and lots of questions. One of the individuals sitting in there was reflecting back on what he remembers of the service, and he remembers Timothy Keller referring to the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he hath said to you, who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through deep waters I have called thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, And sanctify to thee deepest distress. When through fiery trials, boy, I bet you that meant something different. Thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design. Thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, some of us, like tombs they shall still in my bosom be born. The soul that on Jesus hath learned for, leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. In the following days and weeks, help poured in from all over the country. I often say is is that, you know, one of the unique things about the church is, is that the church is often the first to respond and the last to leave. I've seen this around the world, that when when we've been called to respond to disasters, we often are among the first on the ground and we're often there when the NGOs and the government organizations leave. At that time, Christians from every background worked together alongside of the NGOs and the government agencies to provide for the needs of those most affected. 
And again, lots of churches in that area responded in marvelous ways. Redeemer Presbyterian opened up their doors. They opened up their counseling center free of charge. And they gave out over $2 million in aid. Much of it going to people who didn't qualify for other kinds of aid. I've heard lots of testimonies about people who committed their life to Christ during that time period. Who, who in the midst of a time when they could be most skeptical most doubtful of God's love, saw God's love in tangible ways through the body of Christ, but also sought out God's love and found God's love. A lot of the people that Redeemer ministered to in the weeks and the years following September 11th were non-believers and skeptics, and many of them seeing genuine love and care coming from Christians, as well as hearing articulate presentations of the gospel became Christians. Some of you will remember the cross that was formed from the remnants of the girders. We're going to throw that up on the screen if you can do that. Is that cross on the, there? You remember that? That wasn't erected by people. That was what they found. There was actually more than one like that. There's this cross that was formed from the remnants of the girders of Tower 1 that crashed into Building 6. And this cross, for those of you that remember it, became a potent symbol of hope in the midst of tragedy. First responders and cleanup crews began gathering together and praying at the foot of the cross. The cross had so much in common with the blood-stained cross of Golgotha. Frank Seleccia was the one to first see the cross. And he says, when I first saw it, it took my heart. And then he said, it helped heal the burden of my despair. And gave me closure on the whole catastrophe. On the one hand, we can ask, where was God on September 11th? G.K. Chesterton has said, certainly the wild truth called Christianity can address such questions persuasively for those who have the ears to hear. Chuck Colson writes, Are not these the days in this early part of the 20th, 21st century? Are they not a season of urgency, shattered complacency, hellish loss, and unprecedented opportunity? Freedom is at war with fear. If catastrophe can churn from death to resurrection, if hope can triumph over despair, if there was ever a time for the church to be the church, it is now. Billy Graham later said of September 11th, this cruel plot leads us to confess our need for God. Now we have always needed God. 
Many who died in the attacks are in heaven right now. They wouldn't want to come back. Each of us must realize our spiritual need. The cross tells us that God understands our sin and suffering. He took it upon himself. And from the cross, God declared, I love you. Billy Graham challenged Americans to look at the calamity of September 11th as a wake-up call and to focus on the hope of the gospel. I would argue right now that complacency is a greater enemy than suicide bombers. That for the church to be complacent, and really everyone, but for the church in particular to be complacent is to give up and to give in. The church not being the church and the gospel not being proclaimed is a tragedy beyond tragedies. For a short while after September 11th, churches filled, people prayed, and America's conscience was for a little while revived. I can't remember what they say about how long it took for the churches to begin losing people. But it wasn't long. What's unique about the church? What's unique about what we believe and why we believe it? What's unique about the Judeo-Christian worldview? What is it that forms us as the body of Christ? And to the largest extent, it's, it's this, this belief that we need God. That we can't do life without God and that that's the problem. That we've done life without God. That we've decided that we can be masters of our own fate and that we can live life and that we can decide between right and wrong without having his truth to tell us what right and wrong is. We've, to some extent or another, we've abandoned that we're sinful people in need of redemption. There's doctrines uh, that, that form Christianity that are so essential to what we believe that if we abandon these, then, then we, abandon, we abandon everything. And it's these doctrines that, that there's original sin, that all of us struggle with sin, that all of us struggle with this need for God. And, and then there's also this doctrine of total depravity. And what that means is, is that without God, we are nothing. We are nothing because we're depraved just, just because of being born into this broken, sinful world. And then we're so totally depraved that, that we cannot save ourselves, that even our good works are tainted with sin. Now, this is something that's unique to Judeo-Christian Judeo thought. It's somewhat unique that, that, that we believe that, that we have this desperate need for God and that sin has so affected our world and it's so affected us individually that we can't fix ourselves. There's no way that we can fix ourselves. You know, the idea behind humanism is, is that, is that there, there can be this hope in humanity and that somehow we can make ourselves better. That's so contrary to what scripture teaches. We can't make ourselves better. And the interesting thing is, is every time we try to, we create a huge mess. 
Do you know that you can look back into history and you can see times when people said, hey, we're going to create a utopia. Usually it's Christians, believe it or not. They say, hey, we're going to create this city of God, this utopia where everyone's following God. And then they get in there and they start arguing with each other. And pretty soon, a lot of times they start killing each other. So much for utopia. We just absolutely can't. We can't create any sense of utopia or paradise. Our tries have ended in utter failure and even more sin. Even when we as Christians have tried to create a better place, a lot of times in all of our trying, because it's our trying and not God's work, we propagate sin instead of overcome sin. The church isn't called to fix the world, so to speak. That's not what we're trying to do through Montana on a mission or homeward bound or through the missions of the church or anything like that. We can't fix the world, so to speak. Jesus is Savior. We are not. That said, we are called to be Jesus' hands, feet, heart in a broken world. We're called to be his love to a broken world. We're called to point people to Jesus because he is Savior and he's the only one that can fix our brokenness as well as redeem and restore the world and each one of us. Our tools are different than the world's tools. Our tools are faith. Faith that leads us to hope. There's truth, there's love. And then there's the good that comes from God. And that we can embrace that good and be that good that overcomes evil. And as we're coming out of a series that's talked a lot about evil and the presence of evil in our world. I think that it's appropriate to move into talking about what it means to be the church. And what truly defines God's church. And I, and I don't know that I can summarize it perfectly, but, but the church, the, the head of the church is Jesus. It's not a pastor, okay? If I start leading the church, it's a bad day for you. If I lead without Jesus being the lead, is if you can even call me a leader or a shepherd, it's certainly with a lowercase L and a lowercase S. And... Uh, And we got to remember that Jesus is leader. And the moment that we get away from Jesus and we start doing something and we can call it church if we want to, but it's not going to honor Jesus. It's not going to be what he calls it to be. But the church is defined by Jesus. He is the head and we are the body. The church is the one organization, and I struggle even calling it that, but it is organized, but it's also living, and so therefore, it's not just an organization, it is an organism. It is all of the people who believe in Jesus, and so we're not talking about the evangelical church, we're talking about the church of Jesus that has various names and is all over the world. No, 
one church superseding another church is we have to be very careful about building a church kingdom, meaning an evangelical church or a Baptist church or anything like that. We're not called to build our kingdoms. We're called to build his kingdom. So the church is one organization that can provide a strong moral compass and spiritual truth that feeds the soul, cares for the needy, and points people towards the true hope that is found in Jesus. To do this, the church needs to capture, and I would say today, recapture its biblical identity. What does it mean to be the people Jesus calls his own? Against whom the gates of Hades cannot prevail. In Matthew 16, 18, it's interesting because Jesus is addressing Peter and he says to Peter, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And, and you might say, Sorry. And you might say is, is, what is Jesus talking about when he addresses Peter? What is he talking about? Some say it's on the rock, meaning Peter. And I would say is, is no, when you look at the context is, is that it's Peter's confession. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, he says, I'm going to build my church on that confession right there. I'm going to build my church on that confession. And even the gates of Hades <coughs> will not prevail against A point that I want to make. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a Christianity apart from the church. This idea that we can be Christians apart from the church, is a dangerous idea. It creates all kinds of orphans. But it's not something that the Bible talks about. Radical individualism has invaded our culture, especially Western culture. And it has affected Christians. And it's unbiblical. You can't be a church by yourself. The church is the people of Jesus gathered together. Who gather to worship God. To be under the word of God. And then to scatter. But we gather so that we can scatter. And again, it's not about the evangelical church. Let me say this about the church, and I'm talking about the whole body of Christ. The church cannot give what it does not have. And a church without Jesus cannot give Jesus to a broken world. A church that increasingly puts Jesus off to the side and puts the Bible off to the side, it might call itself a church, but it's no longer the church because it's not being led 
by Jesus. And so a church cannot give what it does not have. And more than anything else, we need Jesus. We need to be so committed to Jesus and so committed to following him and so committed to obeying him that we're daily being convicted, daily asking Jesus, how can I follow you today? How can I be so filled with your love that I can love the people around me, my family and my friends and my colleagues at work and my community? And then yes, when the opportunity arises, the world. But a church cannot give what it does not have and it cannot do until it embraces who it is. Meaning is, is that we are the body of Christ. This side of heaven, we struggle with imperfection as the church, just as each one of us. Even when we've committed our lives to Christ, we struggle with imperfection. But we follow the one who is imperfect. And so when we fail, we come to the one who is perfect and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my sin and help me to follow you. Help me to follow you in everything that I do. Help me to follow you daily. Help me to follow you as a father or a mother or As a student or a child, help me to follow you. Let me talk about some of the distinctives of the church. The church is called to proclaim the gospel. We'll talk about that in a minute. The church is called to be a custodian of the truth. Not any truth. Not any truth. But the truth as it's contained in Holy Scripture. And so we are called to be custodians of the truth. And that's why we fight about what this says. Now we have to fight well and we have to fight carefully. But we fight to get to what God says in his word. And we fight for the truth of it. And we fight to stay close to it and we fight to preserve it. We believe that the Bible is inerrant and we say in the original documents, which is why we're very careful when we translate scripture. It's why we believe that we should actually put the names of the interpreters down when they do new versions. Because even those individuals Those Christians who are interpreting, they want to be held accountable for the way that they interpret. We fight for the truth and we are custodians of the truth. The church is called to present Christ. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. The church is called and even formed to be repentant men and women who have identified with Christ, have been redeemed by him, and are on his mission. The church is committed to what has been called Quorum Deo, which which means living in the presence of God and before the eyes of God. There's nowhere we can go where we're not in the presence of God and where the eyes of God aren't on us. And the church 
is called to be filled with holy fear and reverence, just like the early church. The church desperately needs to regain and compl- re- regain and reclaim a holy awe of God, understanding that we live day by day in the presence of God and that we look forward to the day when we will meet him face to face. And again, I think about Job. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Job. And I think about Job who was living in the broken world that we're in today, who went through incredible suffering and yet kept his eyes fixed on God to the extent that in his suffering, while his body was literally being ravaged by disease and sores, that he cried out and he said in Job 19, 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I think about what's important. Life is a mess, isn't it? I was thinking about that a little bit this morning because when you mess with things, you mess with things. And uh, when, when you go to one service, you forget to put up chairs. You also forget that your live stream is scheduled for a specific time and I forgot to change the times. And so those on live stream are only catching a part of the service. But life's a mess. We're a part of the mess. And we are a mess. Which is why we need Jesus. At the heart of the message of the early church, and it's supposed to be a part of the message of the church today, is the call to Christ. Which is what the disciples told the people of Jerusalem, their first proclamation coming out of the upper room, being filled with the Holy Spirit, their first proclamation is you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You put him on a cross. You crucified him with the help of others. But you need Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, when, when the disciples, they, they came out to the people, and, and you can read all about that in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets to the point where he says, Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And you know, it's really interesting there, because he says, whom you crucified. Meaning is, it's just because you didn't pound the nails into the cross doesn't mean that you're off the hook. You crucified him. You put him on the cross. You can't get out of this. You're accessories. And scripture would say that we all are. It said that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. When was the last time that you were, spiritually speaking, cut so deeply? 
that it was as to the depth of your heart. When was the last time that you were so convicted that it was a spiritual heart attack, so to speak? And one of the struggles that I think that I have is, is not grieving over my own sin. That I actually have to think about is, is Lord, how have I displeased you? That I have to think about is, is Lord, why is it so hard for me to notice all of my sin? See, that's part of that total depravity is there's a lot of times we're, we're cognizant of it, but not really, Right? But what does it look like for us to be cut to the heart, realizing that it's our sin that put Jesus on the cross? That we're all guilty. And what does it look like to be cut to the heart to to the extent that we cry out, as those early people cried out to Peter and to the apostles, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that repent means to churn. To turn away from your selfishness and your selfish ways of thinking and your self ways of thinking. To churn. And when we turn, we're saying, okay, God, I, I don't want to think about it the way that I've thought about it. I want to think about this from your perspective. I want to recognize That I can't solve my own problems and I can't fix my own needs. In fact, I'm so needy that I don't even realize how needy I am. And so, Lord, I'm going to turn and I realize that I need you. Because when I do life my way, I mess it up. And so repent, turn, and be baptized. That symbolizes the change that happens when you turn. That, that you, you are saying is, is, I want this change to a level that I may not even fully understand. That baptism is, is it symbolizes the change that goes on in your heart. And as Peter says, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, do this. Repent and be baptized. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. And that's where we all start. Is we all start far off, very far off. And it says that with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those that accepted his message were baptized. Why? Because they acknowledged the change and they wanted to identify with the change. That's why baptism is so important. Now, repentance always precedes baptism. Don't get baptized if you're not willing to repent, to churn. Because baptism symbolizes the change that only God can do. And it's a picture of the cleansing that only God can provide. But it's also, it's also a picture of the new person that you become when you put your faith in Christ. For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. 
And then one of my other favorite verses, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And really, that's a beautiful picture of baptism because it's an interesting thing about baptism. We're told, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Romans and he says, hey, what shall I say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And so he's talking about sin and he's like, well, hey, if sin's forgiven, why don't we just go out and sin? No. No, that's not repentance. He says, by no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? We are those who have died to sin. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And that's why we practice baptism by immersion. Is it such a beautiful picture of what's happened in the same way that Jesus died, we die. That's the going on under the water. I mentioned this before, but in some countries, when they're doing baptisms, they say, I kill you in the name of Jesus, and I bring you back to life. That might freak you out, but (laughs) I think it's kind of a cool picture. Maybe. Okay. Um, We don't want rumors to go around that the pastor's killing people. Um, Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I want to be very clear. Salvation is by faith. Belief and repentance in scripture go hand in hand. It's because we have faith that we repent. And that because we've repented, we obey Jesus. He was baptized. We get baptized. On the 21st, we're doing baptisms. And if you haven't been baptized, please talk to me. And it's that call to live in the newness of life that all of us are called to. And then every time we fail... We can say, Jesus, forgive me. You've made me a new creation. I'm not called to this. I'm called to that. I'm called to the newness. And so, Lord, forgive me and help me to live in that forgiveness every day. And we're to do that as the body of Christ. Encouraging each other, supporting each other, helping each other to live the Christian life. And then, just like we're going to do here in a few minutes... We've gathered so that we can scatter and go be the body of Christ in our community, in our world. Being the hands and the feet of Jesus, seeking to show his love in a broken world. And then even in our failure, pointing people to Jesus. Let's be the church. Let's be the church. First, as those who have come to Jesus, who have been changed by his truth, who are custodians of his truth, and who proclaim his truth. And then we live out his truth in every way that we possibly can. Let's pray. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father and Lord God, Lord, it's so easy to go astray in our world today. 
It's so easy to get away from your word, the Bible. And so, Father, I pray that you would sustain us, that you would encourage us, that you would help us, Lord. And, Lord, that you would constantly be convicting us of your truth. That we would be your people called by your name to be your hands, your feet, your heart in this broken world. But Lord, that we'd never do it as the ones who have the answer apart from Jesus being the answer. And that we humbly, that we humbly, that we've embraced the truth and that we've come to Jesus and that we've repented. And Lord, that we've been identified with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. That we've been cleansed of sin and that we're seeking to be cleansed of sin and that we're committed to obeying you. And Lord, that we would learn more and more about what it looks like to love each other and love our families, love our community, and love our world. But not a sappy kind of love that's just words, but really is the love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of Jesus. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen.